0: Well, I want to uh, encourage you now, if you' turn in your Bible, so the book of First Corinthians, First Corinthians, chapter 12, and we will be reading from verse 31 on through First Corinthians, chapter 13, verse eight. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. The text reads, But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, today is Mother's Day, and we are so blessed to have the children here with us. And we're so blessed to be able to worship together as one church body and one church family. And so I'd like to ask, how many of you are normally back in the Sunday school area, back in the back? How many of you are, let's see, 11 years old and down? You want to raise your hands real high so I can see you? You are normally in Sunday school, right? Okay. Well, I have a question that I want to ask you, or maybe some of the students as well. Because I always like hearing about what you think. And I could use some help. We just talked about love. And one of the questions that I have for this Mother's Day is this. If you were to complete the sentence, my mother would really appreciate it if I blank. What would you say? My mother would really appreciate it if I did what? What would you say? Do you have an idea? Ah, there's one. What would your mother really appreciate? When I wash the dishes. When you wash the dishes, that's so nice, and give your mother a hug. Who else has an idea? Somebody else have an idea? My mother would really appreciate it if I... Clean my room. What was that? Clean my room. Clean your room. Mmm, my mother always appreciated that, too. That's a great idea. What else? My mother would really appreciate it if I did what? What would your mother really appreciate, you think? Bring a smile to her face. Made her dinner. Made her dinner. Mmm, that's a good idea. What else would your mother really appreciate? Do you have an idea? Somebody wanna share? I think kids wanna share. Yeah. If I got my baby sister up and let her sleep in. Oh, that's nice. Let your mom sleep in. Yeah, moms work really hard, so they always like the opportunity. What else? My mother would really appreciate it if I did what? You have another idea? All of these smiling folks right here. If I studied? Well, you studied. Oh, good. If I got a job. Oh, you got a job. That's 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 good too. <laughs> Maybe uh, I'll hire you, Spencer. <laughs> what else would your mother really appreciate? Well, There's a little clip I'd like to show you as the lights are turned out about a little girl who tried to do something nice for her mother and we'll take a minute to watch that. you kids who don't recognize what a laptop is, we don't want to wash our mother's laptop. But we want to do kind things for our mothers, because today is Mother's Day, we want to honor them. And the difference in our showing of love to our mothers is the difference that Paul talks about here when he talks about the subject of love. Because when Paul talks about the subject of love, it's not merely a feeling, it's doing something for someone else. And he details that right here in this passage. So we want to look this morning to see what the Bible tells us about the subject of love. So let's bow in a word of prayer together before we begin our study. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for your goodness and your kindness and your grace. Father, may your word to be divided and applied rightly. For we desire, O oh God, to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins here and he says, I'll show you a more excellent way. And that is love. He's writing to the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church, they were filled with very selfish people, people who were out to show themselves off. They were suing one another. There were divisions in little groups. There were cliques. They weren't showing love to one another. They were living in sin. They were tolerating sin. They were proud, in fact, that they had sin in their church, and they thought of themselves more highly than the next guy over, trying to do one up on the next person over all of the time. Paul just got done talking with them about the subject of tongues, and they were wanting the limelight. And that's why he says, You know what? I'll show you a more excellent way. In fact, he says, You know what? There's a great way. There's a great way to show one another what it really means to be in the body of Christ. Because oftentimes people, even in the church, they want a platform. They want to be seen. They want to be heard. They want a public ministry. They want to be in the limelight. Paul here tells them, look, that's not what it's all about. It's not all about yourself. They thought maybe it'd be better. After all, they had seen that so many times. Perhaps even in the time of Christ, when the Pharisees would come up. And do you remember what the Pharisees would do? They were the religious leaders of that time. And they would come up and they would pray. And they would stand on the street corner and pray these long prayers, repetitious. So they might seem very holy. Or they would give and they'd blow a trumpet and people would see how much they gave. They were showing off. That's not loving. That's not what love is about. So when we look at love in the Bible, as we think about how can I show love to others and maybe our mothers on this day, what does it mean to love? We look into the language of the ancient New Testament times. We find that there are four words for love. There are four kinds of love. In the English language, we just have one. Love is this, love is that. We have a particular concept of that, but In the Greek language, there were four words. One was storge. It was a family like parents loving their children. It was used in the ancient times. And then there was another word, eros. That was the romantic love. The type of love that people might see on TV or in movies today. Storge, which is between parents and children. Eros, which is between those who are lovers or a romantic type of love. And it's very interesting. That eros is never used in the New Testament. Rather, there are two words that Christians are to be. And that is phileo, which is a brotherly love. That's word from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's used of tender affection. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does in John 20, uh, John 5.20. But there is another word that is used for love that is a predominant use of the word and it is agape. It is unconditional love. This is the type of love that it says in John 3 16 for God so loved the world that he what gave his one and only son. It is a love that shows itself in actions, not just feelings. Not just, oh, I feel loving. Oh, I love them. It's the type of love that God commands husbands to love their wives. That Greek word that J.I. Packer says has been virtually a Christian invention, a new word for a new thing. Apart from 20 occurrences in the Old Testament, it's almost non existent before the New Testament. And it draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It's not a form of natural affection, but an intense supernatural fruit of the Spirit of God. It's a matter of the will rather than feeling. So much of our love today is all about feeling. Oh, I'm not in love anymore. or I don't feel like I want to love them. But agape love, the type of love that Paul talks about right here, is a love of action. A love of choice. A love in which God loved us. In fact, it's so important that Paul begins by talking about our motives. Our motives. Why do we do everything that we do? And he says in verses 1 through 3, Our motive is to be loved. If I speak with tongues of men and angels, do not have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, he says. You know, he begins with a word of speech. He begins with a hyperbole. Saying, boy, if I could speak in all the tongues of men or even of angelic languages of angels, then, boy, wouldn't I be great? But no, if I don't have love, it means nothing. Back then, noisy gongs and clanging cymbals were part of the pagan worship back then reminded me when I read that when I used to go to the University of Washington on the streets there would be people dressed in orange and they'd be clanging these cymbals and they would be doing all sorts of things and chanting as if they were praying means nothing means nothing if I don't have love if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge it says all faith if I give all of my possessions to feed the poor If I'm willing to even die and have my body burned but don't have love, it profits me nothing. In essence, the Bible says what? You can be the smartest person in the world, the wealthiest person in the world. You can be the most gifted individual in the world and do great things even for God. Build hospitals, go to foreign lands, do all of these things even in the church. But if you don't have love, that motivates all of this does nothing it's worthless means nothing true love seeks the highest good for someone else true love seeks the highest good for someone else and brings glory to god so what does this mean like i mentioned in the book of ephesians this word love agape love is also commanded of husbands to love their wives it's a choice it's a choice it's a command doesn't mean that you may always feel like it, because this love is not a feeling, it's an action. We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That is what the command is. It doesn't matter how they respond or how we may be treated or whatnot. It is a choice. It means for... Girls, If you're dating a guy and he tells you that he loves you, he's going to do what is best for your highest good. He's going to protect you, not take advantage of you. That is what true love is. It means that we will speak the truth in love. It means that when someone needs to be told something, that we're courageous enough because we care about them, to warn them, to tell them, to talk with them, because it's for their good, despite how they may react. We tell them the truth in love. And even in this list that Paul gives here, there are many, many good things, many good things that people can do. They can feed the poor, it says. They can have great faith. They can use one's spiritual gifts to serve God. All of these good things we can do for God. All of these things. Lead, teach, give, go on mission trips. But if your motive is not... Because I love God and I have a love for those that I want to see blessed by me, well, it means nothing. So what is our motive? What's our motive when we do what we do? We choose to do whatever we do. What is our motive? Is our motive like the Pharisees to be seen by others? Seen by others? Want the public limelight? Conscientious of how others view us if we do or don't do something. We may give generously because, well, we don't want people to think we're cheap. Rather not give or we serve actively because, oh, people want to see us as a certain way, but not because we're motivated because we love to do what we do. Or is our motive maybe to be complimented by others? To be complimented, for someone to say, thank you, or that was good, or a great job, or whatever it might be. And if there's no affirming feedback of any type, we say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'd never be content picking up the garbage after everybody has left. Or do we do it so that we simply ourselves will be feeling good? Is it just because of us? Primarily self-centered and this can even extend to people who rarely or never say anything that might be construed as negative to somebody else. Maybe they would never want to correct somebody, rarely confront somebody, rarely discipline children or whatever it might be. Why? Because, well, we don't want them to not like us. We don't want us to be in a bad conflict. We don't want any anger towards us. We don't want them to think poorly of us because I said something that they needed to hear. But, gosh, I'm what? I don't want to feel bad? Do we do it because we want to feel good just for ourselves? What's our motive? What is our motive? Is our motive for their highest good? Jesus exemplified love. Many times He was an encourager. He was a person who was compassionate, who was gentle. Many times He was a person who blessed others. He healed them. He met their needs. He taught them. There are other times though, He, what, rebuked them. Oftentimes He would tell the disciples, you of little faith. Or He would even rebuke those who were not followers of Him like the Pharisees. But He spoke the truth and it was motivated by love. The point here in these passages and these verses is that what we do is to be motivated by love. Like Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us. Now let's look at what the characteristics of love is. Love, it says here in the Bible, is patient. Is patient. As one commentator puts it, it is long-suffering. It patiently endures. The idea of patience is that somebody repeatedly perhaps takes advantage of us. They get on our nerves. They repeatedly mistreat us. That's what long-suffering means. One early church father, Chrysostom, says, It is a word which is used of a man who is wronged, who has it easily in his power to avenge himself, but will never do it. Patience never retaliates. That's what love is, it's being patient with people. When I was in seminary, there was a pastor that I had Actually, he was in the same church. He was ministering there and he was serving there. And he taught me a very valuable lesson about patience. He told me there will always be people. There will always be people who will see you and they may want to attack you. They may have something against you. They may even look at you as their enemy. Don't ever look at them back as if they're your enemy. Look at them as wounded sheep. And I learned a lot from that when I thought about it. Because when an animal is caught in a trap, and they're wounded and hurting, what do they do if you try to go and help them? Many times they'll try and bite you, or they'll growl at you, or they'll fight you, or whatever it might be. doesn't matter what your motives are. Your motives may be good, but they may not see it like that. Even though they've been hurt, they're simply perhaps afraid. And that's common in relationships just between people. There's an old phrase, sometimes used, I've heard in counseling, that it says, Hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. In other words, people who have been perhaps hurt, perhaps abused or criticized or taken advantage of, will turn around and often their pattern of life in the future is the same. They, too, will become an abuser. They, too, will become a person who might take advantage of others. Not all the time, but many times. But Christian love is radically different because it tells us that we can overcome. We can be all that God wants us to be. And we're to love people who are difficult. That's what this word patience means. Love people who are difficult, who get on our nerves. Love people who irritate us, who get underneath our skin. And God calls us to be patient with them, showing them what love is. Because oftentimes our love is overshadowed because we love things. We love money. We love this world more than we love people. There's a story about a young man and his father. They farmed on a little piece of land and this young man and his older father didn't have much in common except for the land that they farmed on. Several times a year they would load up this ox-drawn cart with vegetables and they would go to the nearest city to sell all of these vegetables The old man, he believed in taking it easy. But the young boy, he was usually in a hurry, sort of the go-getter, type A. And one morning, bright and early, they hitched up the ox on the loaded cart and started on the long journey. And the son thought, well, if they walked a little bit faster, kept going all day and night, they'd make it to the market early the next morning. And so he kept prodding, prodding the ox. With a stick, urging the ox to move on, move on. And the man would say, "Take it easy, son. You'll last longer." The son snapped back and he said, "Well, if we get to the market ahead of others, we'll have a better chance of getting our goods sold." Father didn't say anything. He kind of pulled his hat over his eyes and fell asleep in the seat. The young man was itchy and he was irritated. Oxes can only move so fast. He stubbornly refused to change his own pace, though. Four hours, four miles down the road, they came to a little house. The father woke up and smiled and said, here's your, ''Here's your uncle's place. Let's stop and say hello.'' ''But we lost an hour already,'' the son said. ''Then a few more minutes won't matter.'' ''My brother and I live so close, yet we see each other so seldom,'' the father answered slowly.'' The boy fidgeted and fumed, and the old man and his brother laughed and talked for almost an hour. On the move again, the man took his turn leading the ox, and they approached a fork in the road, and the father led the ox to the right, and the son said, to the left it's shorter. I know, said the man, but this way is much prettier. Have you no respect for time? The young man said impatiently, Oh, I respect it very much. That's why I like to use it to look at beauty and enjoy each moment to its fullest. So the winding path led through these beautiful meadows, these wildflowers, a rippling stream, and all of this time, this young man missed as he was fuming inside his own heart, preoccupied with making money and wanting in anxiety to get there as soon as possible. He didn't notice how beautiful the sunset was that day. Twilight found them and it looked like a huge, colorful garden because of the orange sky. The old man breathed in the aroma, listened to the bubbling brook and pulled the ox so hard. Let's sleep here, he said. This is the last trip I'm taking with you, the sun said. You're more interested in watching sunsets, smelling flowers and making money. He says, why, that's the nicest thing you've said in a long time, smiled his dad. A couple of minutes later, he was snoring as his boy glared into the stars. And the night dragged on and the sun was restless. But before sunrise, the young man shook his father awake and they hitched up the ox and they went on. But a mile down the road, they happened upon another farmer, a total stranger, trying to pull his cart out of the ditch. Let's give him a hand, the man whispered, and lose more time? Relax, son. You might be in a ditch someday yourself, and others might need your help. The boy looked away in anger. It was almost eight o'clock in the morning by the time the other cart was back on the road, and suddenly a great flash split the sky. It sounded like thunder that had followed. Beyond the hills, the sky grew dark. Looks like a big rain in the city, the old man said. Well, if we'd hurried, we'd be there, almost sold out by now, son said. Take it easy, you'll last longer, you'll enjoy life so much more. It was late in the afternoon by the time they got to the hill that overlooked that city. They stopped and stared down at it for a long, long time. Neither of them said a word. Finally, the young man put his hand on his father's shoulder and said, I see what you mean, Dad. They turned their cart around and began rolling slowly away from what had once been the city of Hiroshima. Love is patient, especially with those that get under our skin, that irritate us, that do things differently. We may not understand why God has us waiting. But God too is patient. And we look at this passage and we say love is patient. God too is patient with us. That means He's always willing to take us back. He's always waiting for us to come home to walk with Him. He's always willing to receive somebody who is repentant. And no matter how many times we have failed, God is still patient with us. And He's still going to teach He's still going to discipline. He's still going to encourage. And he's still going to coach us through life. God will never give up on us. Because he is a patient God. And we are to be patient with others as well. Love is kind, secondly. Hand in hand with patience is kindness. And I think this Mother's Day I was sharing about my own mother. I think about... Kindness, and I think about my own mother as I was sharing with a couple of friends around the dinner table. You see, because after my mother was married in 1956, her mother-in-law, which is my father's mother, lived with us. My grandmother was primarily supported most of her life by my father. And as many of you know from life experience, sometimes family dynamics aren't the easiest between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law, not always the smoothest. But imagine for you who are mothers if your mother-in-law moved in with you or your daughter-in-law lived with you. Well, my mother, she lived, took care of my grandmother for 35 years till my grandmother passed away in 1991. I especially remember the kindness and the patience of my mother. Wouldn't be always perfect, but... The fact that it was near the end of my grandmother's life. She became much more senile and she had dementia. And had lost her ability sometimes to even hold her bowels. My parents both cared for her. Cleaned her up. She lived with us pretty much up until the day she went home to be with the Lord. Christian love, agape love, is patient. It is kind. And the word kind means useful. It means serving. It means gracious. And it is goodwill. It is more than just a feeling of kindness. It is kindness in action, willing to serve, willing to be gracious and give. And kindness is not two-faced. It's not saying something to someone when they're there and then behind their back saying something else. It's not treating them nice up front and then retaliating behind their back, whether it's slander or gossip or complaining. True love shows its kindness both up front as well as behind. Love, thirdly, is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Jealousy and love can't mix, just like oil and water can't mix. When someone is jealous, they look at someone else with envy in their heart and they say, I wish I had what they had. I'm going to try and get that. I really wish I did. Somebody else has more money, has a nicer car, has a bigger house, has a larger boat, opportunities to travel, whatever it may be, the jealous person says, I want what they have. And that incubates covetousness in the heart. But a worse form of jealousy than that, than wanting what somebody else has, a worse form is when somebody else has something and that person in their own heart says, I wish... They didn't have what they have. I wish they hadn't got that promotion. I wish that they hadn't gotten that, whatever it might be, because I would want it for myself. That type of jealousy is even worse because it it wills and wishes wickedness upon somebody else. You see, jealousy was in the heart of Cain. When he brought his offering, he didn't receive God's favor. He was jealous of his brother Abel, and he killed his brother Abel. Joseph's brothers, when Joseph was the favored son of his father, Joseph's brothers were jealous and they threw him into a pit. They wanted to get rid of him and then lied to their father. The Babylonians were jealous of Daniel and his friends. They tried to entrap him time and time again. Jealousy leads to greater and greater sins. It's like that old story of two shopkeepers. Their stores were across the street from one another. And one shopkeeper would look at the other and it would be a competition. They would be very jealous of one another. And that shopkeeper he would have a sale and all of these people would storm over there and he'd stand over there and kind of wink at the guy and this guy would fume. And so he'd have a bigger sale and try and draw people into his store and get more money and it would be such a competitive rivalry. The story goes though that one day an angel said, well, I'll come. He came to one of the shopkeepers and said, I'll give you. I'll give you anything that you ask. But whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. You want to be rich? You could be rich, but he's going to be twice as rich. You want to live a long and healthy life? tell you, he's going to live a longer and healthier life. So, what's your desire? The man frowned and thought for a moment and he said, This is what I want. Make me blind in one eye. That's what he said. Because he was jealous, he wanted the other to be worse than him. One sign is how easy is it for us to show that we weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice? Somebody who gets a better grade? Is we are we happy for them? even though the class is graded on a curve. Somebody else receives an award when there's only one to be given away. Somebody else receives a promotion or a bonus? Are we happy for them, or we're we jealous, envious. Love is not jealous. Fourthly, love doesn't brag. Love does not brag. Jealousy wants to bring somebody else down. Bragging wants to bring ourselves up. Lifting ourselves up. Be one up on another person. It's an expression of our pride when we exemplify all the things that we can do or are. You know, I've sat next to people, you've sat next to people. It becomes a one-way conversation. Basically listening them talk about all of the things they have, all of the things they know, all of the things they can do or have done. I've met people like that who introduce themselves by giving you a long story about all of their accomplishments of what they've achieved. And it can be something really technically good as well. Technically, it can be good. I read an article last week, a few days ago, Grand Rapids Press about a man these days he was uh, bragging about how how his little tiny foreign made car got such high gas mileage so they his friends became irritated with him and they decided well they were just tired of all of that So, when he was working and bragging, they would go down to the garage where he parked his car, you know, and they would put in more gas into his tank. And soon, the man, he was getting 90 miles a gallon. (laughs) And he was telling people how his car goes 90 miles a gallon, and he was just bragging all the place. And nobody was, of course, looking at him. Then it was even... Worse, when they stopped giving him gas. that it went down 60 miles or whatever and they didn't know why. Bragging is so sinful because we secretly, in our own heart, want some sort of credit for what we've gotten. We want some sort of credit for what we have done. Bragging sometimes comes because we're very insecure about our own selves. We care more about what others think of us than what we truly are. It can be even done in ministry. Look what God has done. Everything we have though, everything we are, everything we have ever achieved, whatever we've earned, everything is a gift from God. Earlier in the chapter, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why? Did we do it ourselves? The very fact that we woke up this morning... It's by the grace of God. The very fact that you can think. The very fact that you live, that you didn't have some aneurysm. The very fact that you earn and have the job that you have. The very fact that you had good grades in your education or whatever it may be. All a gift of God. All a gift of God. And that is why there's no reason to brag. Love is not arrogant. Arrogant says, hand in hand with bragging and boasting is arrogance. An arrogant person puffed up, overbearing with pride. The person who is arrogant has lost touch really of reality, what reality is. They think they are so much better or so much higher or so much more than someone else. And God hates arrogance. In Jeremiah forty eight twenty nine, God says about Moab. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. Of his haughtiness, his pride, his arrogance and his self-exaltation. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 8.13 says. But in some circles today, you know what? Arrogance is the name of the game. In the sports world, arrogance seen as being strong. Or maybe arrogance is good for some people for show business. People listen to you if you're arrogant. In politics, arrogance can be viewed as courage. But arrogance, however, is very nauseating. It's a stench. Sort of like bad breath. You know, everyone knows it except for the speaker. The person who exemplifies love, though, is not arrogant or boastful. And that's certainly not how God is. God is not arrogant. He doesn't say to us, I'm God, you're but dust. Not how God is. Not how we're to be. It's easy to think that we're not proud, we're not arrogant, or we're not boastful like so-and-so. But you know, as I thought about mothers, one thing in our family, as my parents have gotten older, they've forgotten more things. They make more mistakes. They do things that are are absent-minded. And so in our family, we... We laugh about many of those things together. We talk about them at the dinner table and we try to take it easy. But it's easy because I know that in some families, children can become frustrated or angry or upset with their older parents. It's easy to think, how come you didn't remember to do this? Or I told you to do this. I told you to take this medication or whatever it might be. It's easy to be angry and upset. To think that we know better, that they should know better, or whatever it may be. And my parents have often reminded me, as we've laughed around the dinner table, someday, you're going to be just like us. So be patient. Don't think that, oh, your mother, your mother isn't as good because she's older and I'm younger. Because someday, you too will be there. Don't think in pride... Or in anger and frustration because love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious, but it is gentle and meek. The most excellent motive of all that we do is to be love love towards God and love towards others. Love is not going to be proud. Love is patient with people. No matter how much they get under our skin, love is kind and giving and encouraging for many, many years, maybe. You have to show that love. Love is not jealous, not wanting, not being discontent, not unhappy because somebody else has gotten something. Love isn't bragging. Love is not proud. And our mothers today, when we think about them, are honored today, especially we think of how they have loved us. How patient they have been with us when we have been what? Brats? When we were kids, how kind, how unselfish, how humble, even when we have not given them the honor or treated them like they ought to be treated. Love is to be our motivation in all that we do, whether it's to our mothers or to one another. Let's bow out together in a word of prayer. Our God, we ask, may you fill our hearts with love. Love for one another, love for our mothers. And may we be patient and kind, knowing, O God, that you have blessed us with mothers who have been patient and kind, caring, raising us. And so, Father, today we pray, God, for your special blessing upon them. In Jesus' most precious name, Amen.